Hello, and welcome to the Sawyer Seminar Bites podcast, hosted by the Boston University Center on Forced Displacement. This podcast showcases talks hosted by our Sawyer Seminar series on border regimes, a grant generously funded by the Mellon Foundation. My name is Chandra Back, the podcast director here at the Center, and today we will be listening to a segment of the February Sawyer Seminar. This talk is given by Professor Kaya Schilda, entitled The Outsourcing of Border and Migration Management in the EU and US, Externalization in the Form of Privatization and Secrecy, as she presents with Professor Nora Laurie, giving a talk entitled Muddying the Waters, Migrant Interdiction in the High Seas. Good afternoon, um, or good morning. Um, it's really a pleasure to be here. And initially we were gonna do separate presentations, but we co-author a lot together and we have a piece um, specifically about externalization in the high seas. And so just to kind of start us off, um, when we're talking about border externalization, who's externalizing borders, it's precisely the states um, that uh, have core sovereignty over territorial um, decisions over who is allowed to enter the territory and reside there and for how long. And so um, taking uh, John Torpy's invention of the passport has this beautiful framing of thinking about um, modern states as being entities that monopolize the authority over legitimate movement. And as this being a key aspect of sovereignty alongside security and monopolization over legitimate violence, which is often used as a more common, um, the Viberian approach of kind of focusing on security. So uh, authorization of mobility is um, arguably even more um, uh, connected to state sovereignty. And so one of the things when we think about how states are protecting that sovereign right is to focus on restriction. But border control is not about restriction, it's about filtration and um, increasing discretionary power over who can enter, who you want to enter and who you don't. Um, and so a, a lot of what we're trying to think through with this externalization is understanding um, how these aspects of border controls remotely are also about filtration, accelerating. Um, so both delaying, obstructing the entry of certain undesirable migrants, typically labor migrants or those seeking humanitarian protection, while accelerating uh, pathways for business people, um, tourists, uh, and especially high net worth individuals. And so um, I find that Ayelat Shahar has this beautiful book called The Shifting Border. And what she does is, is say, look, we expect that these territorial borders are fixed, right? We know where they are. We, there might be contestation about where that specific border lies on a map, but borders are fixed in, in these territories. And she argues that thinking about contemporary migration control it's not about where the migrant meets the border. It's not that the border is here and the migrant meets the border. The border is being pushed out to meet the migrant way before they even begin their journey in some times. And so, and um, thinking about uh, kind of breaking down aspects of border control, it can be helpful to think about um, border zones where you have uh, what we kind of typically think of as the space of a border, but also exterior controls, forms of remote controls, which are where the border is kind of being pushed out outside the territory of the state or interior controls. And interior controls simply mean when the border clings to the migrant, um, clings to the individual internally. When you have an apparatus in place an identity management infrastructure that connects legal status to 
um, a whole range of uh, resources and membership rights in a state, such as access to healthcare, landlords, rents, um, uh, schools. So a, a whole range of private and public institutions that check legal status internally is also border control. Though that's interior control. Um, and so uh, one of the things I have a response in, in that book with her, um, where she's really kind of thinking about the spatial di dimensions. And I also kind of look at the temporal dimensions of borders. And so um, just without, we're not going to be talking so much about that today, but just to sort of to think about how not just space is used strategically, but also time is thinking about, um, you know, what matters when an individual um, it comes to accruing citizenship rights or membership rights is not how long an individual has actually resided in a territory, but how that um, residencies, how that time is counted and converted into rights by the state. And so by pegging different um, rights to different legal statuses and counting the time of different statuses differently, states increase their discretionary power by delaying, um, suspending, or on the flip side, accelerating uh, time for migrants. And so temporary worker programs, temporary humanitarian protection are examples of how we count people as temporary, even if they've been on these temporary statuses for decades and generations, right? So that's one temporal aspect of slowing down or suspending time, down, uh, suspending time altogether when it comes to undesirable migrants. On the flip side, citizenship by investment schemes are all about decreasing the amount of time you need to be resident in a territory in order to get citizenship. And this is, there's a whole industry now, a quarter of the globe sells citizenship. Um, and it's this, you know, kind of capturing of high net worth individuals for whom high, paying a higher premium can decrease the amount of time or eliminate residency requirements altogether while giving someone citizenship. So again, thinking about spatial borders, temporal borders, but also the shifting border. Um, and so when we talk about today, who states externalized, we're really talking about um, sometimes variation, subnational variation, and which kinds of institutions within the state are externalizing. So uh, uh, executive branches are really important in the story. Um, and this is kind of going back to Torpy and the idea of this being a key notion of sovereignty, even in liberal democratic states that have robust sort of division of power and branches of government, we often see the discretion over who can enter or exit as being this protected domain of kind of plenary power um, where courts potentially have less sort of oversight over these kinds of questions when it comes to national security and when it comes to migration and the two are often intertwined. So they become kind of states of exception when it comes to these particular domains that uh, courts have uh, in general. Uh, often we'll talk about some variation, but may even say we don't have jurisdiction in, in this area. Um, so we're talking about executive branches, and then we're talking about border agents, um, Coast Guard, but also consulates abroad. Um, and that's another way of thinking about these exterior controls and remote controls is the way that pre-authorized or authorization for travel happens far away from the territorial border of the state. Um, well, we'll unpack this a little bit, but there's variation in how different courts, especially in advanced liberal democracies, have reacted to the, this shifting border, especially when it comes to externalization. And we also see externalization being combined with delegation 
to, uh, of border control to non-state actors. So we're going to talk about this in a little bit more detail, but we see private companies, deportation, deten private detention centers, um, but also on the flip side and thinking about accelerated entry, visa processing centers, um, which is a huge industry now um, where you have private companies like VFS, which takes people's biometrics and, and processes visas ahead of time. And again, thinking about this interplay of time and, and um, speed of access, if you pay higher premiums, I mean, the VFS even has a VIP package where they'll come to your house with a biometric um, uh, uh, um, device so they can take your fingerprints from home as if it's like a manicure or something. So, you know, it, paying higher premiums can speed up uh, access to things like authorized um, entry. Uh, also, again, I mentioned the citizenship by investment industry. So there's all sorts of private firms that now um, consult high net worth individuals around different citizenship programs as a, as a part of this idea of wealth planning and, and financial planning and planning for the future. Um, we'll also talk touch a little bit about agreements with third party states. This might be offshore detention centers or actually, um, which we won't come up later, so I'll just unpack is extraterritorial borders. So since we're in the United States, I'll use this as an example, but the US border also exists in uh, Ireland, in the Bahamas, in Canada and in Abu Dhabi. And these are spaces that almost like embassies are considered the sovereign domain of the United States. There are border control, US border control in these locations. And you actually pass the regulatory framework of the border externally in these locations. Um, so I'll stop there and transition over. Thanks, Nora. Um, we, this conversation between um, the two of us started in a cab at the International Studies Association uh, in 2018? No, no, 2015, 2015, 2015 in New Orleans, where we took a cab together back to the airport and started going off on this stuff. So now we have um, an audience. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, but we have thought a lot about this, you know, because if you ask, if you say border externalization, the political science or actually the sociology question um, and sociology and political science question is, who had the authority in its states? States have claimed or hoarded the authority over borders. Um, Torpy says that, Weber says that, over territory, they have claimed it. The peak claiming of this was the 20th century. And we collectively, and this uh, Sawyer Seminar Project have observed that there's some movement away from that. And so we're trying to give a bigger picture, long durée about the who, who's doing the externalizing, and then the why and how. Um, and so that's what we see our, our question as today. So uh, Nura just went through the who, the who is states and then actors coordinating with states, but states had that claim to authority and they're the ones at the center of the giving away of that authority. We think that's interesting and important because it leads to a puzzle. The puzzle is why. States do not typically carve out, diminish, or lessen their own authority, okay? It remains a massive puzzle. And we think we have some, we, we move towards actually some hypotheses about it. So why would states do this? I was just thinking about it, theorizing in my mind while Nura was talking. Well, 
you know, the externalization of border controls in places like uh, um, Ireland, you know, that, that emerged kind of post 9-11? Is it security? Is there an effectiveness or an efficiency question about why? Is it linear? Is it like, oh, that's the way the world works better. Don't worry your little heads about it, you know? Um, or is there, are there benefits to cooperation with third parties that are quite legitimate that where states can't handle border control anymore, so they have to externalize it. I'm using air quotes because I don't believe any of that, you know. <laughs> um, and some of the, the arguments and the hypotheses that we've worked on together, and I have a book project on, and we continue to work on elements of this together, is the evading accountability or responsibility. Something about the modern condition and the modern governing of this of this policy issue makes states want to evade their own authority or their own constituents or their own um, accountability to whom to someone um, and so the question is to whom um, I have a couple quotes here one is from Galia Lahav who you're working with on a project right now states shift liabilities outside of central governments as a way to diminish political costs and reconcile competing interests so that's one hint building up to a hypothesis about why. So there's something about intergovernmental relations. Nuda pointed to the executive branch. There's something often to the executive branch wanting to give away its authority. And also, and the second quote has to do with um, banking and finance institutions, but I find it quite useful on this topic as well. The blurring of boundaries between public and private renders opaque any political responsibility for the wrenching adjustments entailed in late capitalist development. So you can, you can substitute late capitalist development for migration management in that quote if you'd like to. So um, bottom line, paradoxically, states are simultaneously reducing or moving around or hiding or dividing up some parts of their power, shifting it around, but to increase some kind of discretionary power over outcomes, okay? So the how. Um, there's something about evading the uh, accountability. And we've honed in on accountability to what or whom. Sometimes it's accountability to the public or you know, the legislative branch or public inquiry. Sometimes it's accountability maybe to an international organization like the EU. But we found the most common denominator is that states evade their own migration laws, their own laws, responsibilities, processes, or constituencies, things states have codified in their own constitutions, policies, or rule of law. And so Nuda was going over the geographic or spatial elements of that. And that's kind of the conventional wisdom when we think about externalization, it's a geographic feature. There's not, it's not not wrong, but that's not all there is to it. So she also mentioned the temporal element of that externalization. You can push something away in time to get it away from you in terms of evading accountability. But we also wanted to cover three other mechanisms. The three are distance, from the legal controls of your own state. And we don't mean geographic distance. We mean sovereignty distance, distance away from the reach of the laws. It's not necessarily geographic. Also delegation to third states or international institutions and privatization to non-state market actors. So when we're thinking about um, this like a, a movement away that's not just geographic, it's a, a movement away from the regulatory power of different aspects, um, especially advanced liberal democracies. And later on, we'll, we'll kind of talk a little bit about variation across regime type, but I think it is important to sort of point, pay attention to the fact that some of the states that are at the forefront of developing these technology 
are advanced liberal democracies that have robust um, uh, infrastructures in place for things like holding uh, the executive branch accountable, for example. And so um, when we're talking about the extraterritorial reach of the legal regime, it's off, it can be about evading the state's own commitments to international laws that have already been baked into domestic laws or a whole variety of other um, kinds of rights that uh, are uh, baked into sort of membership rights and citizenship rights. Um, and so we're, you know, when we're, it becomes kind of clear, clearer sometimes when you're talking about interior controls of how you're sort of evading membership rights and domestic laws. But um, Jackie Stevens, who's, who runs a Buffett um, deportation clinic at Northwestern Law School, for example, has worked on cases of trying to, you know, sue the US government for deporting people who are US citizens, but are racially profiled and not given enough time to show documentation. And so therefore are, are um, uh, deported, right? So uh, these kinds of mechanisms, both uh, in terms of exterior and in terms of interior can be all sorts of ways of evading things that uh, under the mantle of the law um, should be protected. Um, and so we have an article called, called Muddying the Waters, where we're kind of talking about the regulatory authority of the state, specifically in the high seas, um, which is supposed to be a global comment that no given state has so sovereignty over. And we argue that that kind of um, the shadow of hierarchy there, the fact that states, this is not clearly the jurisdiction, the territorial jurisdiction of a given state actually increases the discretionary power because of, the, because of this argument um, and the courts have interpreted this differently um, based on which court you're looking at. But the basic argument is, if you don't touch ground, then you can't um, claim asylum. And so migrant interdiction policies by, or pushbacks as they're often known are ways of preventing people from reaching the territory of the state and having access to that right. And so the 1993 Supreme Court case Sale versus Haitian Centers Council um, uh, really affirmed that the, it's an interesting case where the court is willfully saying we don't have jurisdiction um, if it doesn't touch ground um, versus the European Courts of Human Rights, Hershey Jama versus Italy, where the European human, uh, Courts of Human Rights uh, basically try to argue that you know jurisdiction follows the border, uh, the Coast Guard, right? So, so that that this is still um, illegal. I, even people should have the right to claim for asylum. And there's this interplay between judicial branches and executive branches. And I think some interesting cases where the courts themselves are saying this doesn't count as our territory. And um, uh, we we talk about the high seas where you're pushing outside. There's also examples like Australia where. The, the border has strategically bleeded inwards where, um, where it's excised part of its territory to say, even if you touch ground in this territorial border zone, that doesn't count as Australia when it comes to claiming asylum. So this kind of playing with the spatial borders is also really about playing with this regulatory power um, of the state, of the legal regime. Great. Uh, so um, this this piece, I fought with a bunch of people when we were trying to get this piece published, because people would say to me, even migration scholars would say to me, oh, liberal states interdict migrants in the high seas because that's where migrants go, because they've been forced to, because it's so dangerous. And our argument counters that, because we actually um, uh, show through variation in regime types that democracies are the most likely states to do that. 
And over time, there's variation in when democracies do it. And I'm, I'm previewing our argument, and it's when their courts have set higher standards. Other parts of the government then try to evade those standards by evading them jurisdictionally. So another mechanism is externalization as delegation. Delegation is when states either transfer some of their sovereignty away to another political actor, could be a domestic political actor, um, like an executive agency or something like that, or when they share control over some policy through an international regime. So classically, European states have delegated some power to the European Union in different domains. Um, delegation can also be then to you know to other states, and we're talking about things like the EU-Turkey deal, the Italy-Libya agreements, the US-America's collaboration migration management strategy. Um, and so often delegation doesn't stop there. Things get then doubly delegated to illicit non-state actors. Why does this matter? Because we're, we care about the evading accountability mechanism of um, why things get externalized in the first place. Externalization is not usually a one-off move. It usually sets off a process of further externalization to watch for. Also, um, things get delegated to supranational um, actors like the EU. And then what's interesting in terms of accountability is things get double delegated, if you think of it in a political theory way, to an executive EU agency like Frontex, which has almost no international legal standing and almost no chain of accountability from European citizens or democracies to the outcomes. So when I say there's no chain, it means that no one in Europe, even politicians, can kind of undo what they've done or change it or shape it because it's just this like creating a bot and letting it get out there in a way. I don't know what the right metaphor is. Um, it's hard to rein it in or control it or shape it or undo it. But our argument is, is that's useful to states and you have to watch for the conditions under which it's useful and why states decide to remove their power, undo it, give it away, and then let it lab leak out. Uh, in a way that can't be controlled. The last uh, mechanism is externalization is outsourcing and privatization. I was gonna give my whole talk on this, but we decided to kind of combine things thematically and make it a bigger conceptual talk. And that is similar to delegation in that it's states giving or taking some of it, their power or sovereign authority over something, security, movement, um, regulation, and creating a contract and having a private firm um, uh, carry that out. And so um, a lot of the, the, the logic here in a unified way is similar. Um, sometimes people have argued that, that uh, outsourcing is done for efficiency reasons or for capacity reasons. Most of that has little evidence and has been debunked in multiple sectors that most of the time is not true. People still go around believing it, but public policy studies have shown it to not be true. Um, and so you have then our favorite hypothesis about evading accountability. So um, in my 2017 book, I show that the EU border security regime um, uh, was shaped not by migration crises or by even the direct preferences of European member states, but by private security, um, uh, actually private defense company lobbying from 20 years before to look for markets to justify the sales of additional defense and security products. And so what that does is it's a little bit of an accidental outcome, but not really, because even when European states were saying, hmm, should we do this? 
Should we have EU border security be about firms providing product platforms that are surveillance, like space-based surveillance of the Mediterranean by like Leonardo, a defense firm in Italy? At the time, actors, political actors were saying, and that might be useful to us because it means we won't have a human-based search and rescue function where we could be held liable and accountable for lives. So it's actually a triple delegation to the EU, the sovereign authority over movement, then to Frontex, and often then from Frontex to corporate security contractors. Frontex itself has taken on functions that are sovereign in terms of being able to uh, make agreements with third-party states and being able to arm itself with defense equipment. It's had that since 2008 and 2011. Um, and then an ongoing project right now, we're taking this argument um, and looking at migration detention. I've been working on this for about five or six years, but the privatization of migration detention in both the US and Europe. We look at, um, we're currently looking at um, a hard case of Italy because Italy has had very public sector control historically over migration detention until very recently when it has outsourced migration detention like its neighbors in Italy, Switzerland, um, Austria, the UK, Germany a little bit. Um, and the question is why? And um, a lot, I have a, a huge amount of empirical um, uh, variation on this that all aligns with our favorite argument. And that is that, for example, in the United States, um, a migration detention was preceded by a rise in prisoner lawsuits or rise in um, lawsuits or uh, efforts on the part of migration rights groups to um, expose the treatment or um, bring transparency to um, migration detention. So then it gets privatized and outsourced. Also a rise in FOIA requests and legislative inquiries precede migration detention um, uh, privatization. And then in the Italy case, it looks like um, a rise in the politicization of the issue and public, big public exposés of the treatment of migrants preceded contracts being given to private companies. We think that this variation allows for social science hypothesis building and testing. There's uh, cross-national variation. We see that um, this activity is more common in liberal democracies than authoritarian regimes. And also um, that amongst, uh, over time within states, um, that there appears to be a push-pull or a cat-and-mouse game between the elements of states um, and the branches of governments, where if a state decides to start making its laws more progressive or migrant-friendly or actually enforce its laws better, that's where you see externalization often. Yeah, I'll oh, just sorry. say on this last note between liberal democracies and authoritarian settings, I mean, this is a very kind of depressing talk, but I also want to like emphasize that different kinds of border control incur different kinds of violence, different types of patterns of violence. And so just looking kind of cross regionally, the three largest migrant receiving regions are North America, Western Europe, and the, the Arab Gulf states, um, which actually accept a higher proportion of migrants from the global south than either North America or, or Western Europe. Um, there's different patterns of violence because the system is structured differently. So in that system, you're really talking about uh, temporary workflow, work authorization. There is no framework for asylum. Um, you People do not get 
extra rights by touching ground. You can't, um, and so in some ways it doesn't function in the same kind of, uh, um, as, as the same kind of like incentive to arrive irregularly, you get extra rights if you can kind of touch ground. In some ways, the, the very idea of creating these havens, but then not giving people secure pathways to flee under duress creates this magnet where people are taking these journeys, um, not because that violence is inevitable, but because of this interplay of on the one hand promising rights and on the other hand, putting militaries in, um, in place to prevent people from accessing those rights. You don't see the same kinds of pressures in Saudi Arabia or in the other Gulf states, which are actually also receiving really large flows of migrants, because over there, you kind of don't have rights either way, right? You don't, uh, there's no promise that if you touch ground, you have this access to, to asylum. So um, there's no cat and mouse game. There's necessary. no cat and yeah. uh, same kind of cat and mouse game. That doesn't mean those borders aren't violent people and there is an irregular um, migration or indebted uh, labor that can turn into trafficking. I'm just pointing out the variation in the types of border violence you see. For more information on the Sawyer Seminar series on border regimes and for upcoming events, go check out the Sawyer Seminar website, linked in the description. This Sawyer Seminar series is made possible with funding support from the Mellon Foundation. This podcast is produced by Boston University's Center on Forced Displacement in collaboration with all members of the team.